I am very, very pleased this afternoon on the warning to be joined by Virginia Congresswoman from the 7th District in her third term, Abigail Spanberger. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to have you on today um, for a lot of different reasons. But the first is this. It's simply not true that every member of Congress is a ne'er-do-well, is a crook, is somebody who on any given day should be institutionalized. There are some exceptional people, uh, people of judgment, uh, people of intellect, people of character, who are patriots, who you want in positions of responsibility uh, for the nation's future, for its security in the present, and looking down the road 50 years from now. And this is one of those one of those people. So I am really thrilled to have her with us today to talk about the future of the country and uh, this moment in politics. Uh, so I'm really thrilled to have you. Thank you for the kind words. Um, <laughs> um, thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to serve uh, and, and proud to be considered among those who are not ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> I, I um, so I think that history can teach us a lot. Um, we can look back at its lessons. Um, it tends to repeat itself, or at least as an imitation. Um, but the one thing we can't know from history is we can't know what it felt like in the moment, the tension. Uh, when Franklin Roosevelt was facing off against Charles Lindbergh in 1940 and the Lend-Lease Act passed by a handful of votes, or when the draft was maintained in 1940 by a single vote. And you think about the implications if the U.S. Army uh, had not begun the draft when it did before Pearl Harbor, the catastrophic results would have followed. So understanding the stakes in those moments, whether it's 1863 and the draft riots, what does it feel like to be a member of Congress right now? And how worried are you? Oh, this is a very interesting question. Um, it, it feels, <clears throat> what does it feel like? Um there are days when it feels disorienting and uh, like I'm, I'm trying to maintain touch with reality. There are days when it's exasperating. There are days when, you know, you, you kind of have those moments looking around and, and hear some of the things that some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle say and think like, you can't possibly be serious. Um, and, and I think that really, in terms of you know my commitment to service at this time is that there has to be steadying forces. Um, you know, there are people who want to dizzy us with the things that they say. and i I remember actually a piece of advice I got when I first started running for Congress. and i I ran against um you know, a guy who came in in the Tea Party wave. It was the seat that previously had been held by Eric Cantor, then majority leader. Uh, he had a primary from the right as part of that Tea Party wave, um, and he was ousted in the primary. And so then I ran against, in 2018, Dave Bratt, who had unseated Cantor. And I had someone tell me 
you know, when you're dealing with him, like, don't, don't follow the shiny. And at first I thought it was a kind of a strange turn of phrase. And, you know, he further explained it. He said, he will say things that you want to kind of follow those rabbit holes because they are at times just so outrageous or so kind of disconnected from the reality of governance. Like don't follow the shiny all the places because you'll become unsteady and it'll you, you never know what you're sort of kind of going against um, or you only are going against something you're not providing that steadiness and I think about that because I, I think the the individual who gave me that advice could have never imagined how important it would be on Capitol Hill because sometimes you'll hear you know particularly people who say unbelievably ridiculous things you know Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or you know Bob Good from Virginia a whole host of people who say unbelievably outrageous things that feel disconnected from the constitution, disconnected from American values, disconnected from the responsibility of governance. Um, and you have to continue to, I mean, almost stay steady and like bat back these ideas without just, you know, following them in these places where you become disoriented from reality. And I think that, you know, there's this effort afoot to try and, dizzy the American people sometimes. It certainly feels that way with, with Trump. You know, the more he says incendiary, ridiculous things, the the more dizzying it becomes. And so I think at times it feels uh, dizzying to be in the halls of Congress and or on the floor and listening to some of the debate. Um, but it also feels like a really important time to just stay really steady, um, Kind of and and grounded and um and and heavy with with the responsibility of the work that we're supposed to be doing, and with the responsibility of what governance should be. And I'm going to be thinking about that question a lot longer for the rest. One of the, of the one of the things that's interesting about you you spent you spent eight years, I believe, as a CIA officer, yeah. and that's the business of assessing information, yep. intelligence trying to find out things. Um, it's very rare that you find the user's manual, right? It's an it's an interpretive business. Um, if you go and you look at this from a cinema perspective, there's the room where before the Bin Laden raid, um, James Gandolfini is playing Leon Panetta and he goes around the room and he asks everybody in the room what percentage chance do you think he's there right and it ranges from 50 to 60 and you know it's all arbitrary and so when you when when you look at trump and you look at the extremist movement in the country what one of the things that i've always done going back seven years i've taken everything that he says both literally and seriously and i tend to do that with all people if you say it i interpret you as meaning it so if Elon Musk says that 60% of his revenue has incinerated and it's because of the Jews, I take him literally. Um, when I hear Mike Huckabee say this is the last election without bullets, um, if Trump is disqualified from running or if Trump loses the election, um, I take him seriously. W when you hear the calls to violence, intimations to violence in our politics from a member of Congress, 
from a former governor like Huckabee. Is this something that you're dialed into, that you hear, that you're attuned to? Is it passing over you, just part of the noise of the moment? Or, or do you take it seriously? Do you assess it as seriously? Do you think we could be on the edge of an era of political violence that's being that's being prefaced by the by the rhetoric? Because certainly it's the case that that the actions that followed the previous burst of rhetoric, which moved the line, which is, hey, and we had a long warning for it. I'm not going to concede the results of the election if I lose. It's only a legitimate election if I win. And my view has always been, as an intelligence matter, that should have struck a five alarm for this entire country back in 2015 when he said it. So I, I'm just curious, as a former intelligence officer, how you process through all the noise, the the stuff that really matters is dangerous, and how do you think about it? Well, I, I think I I perceive it the same way that you do, which is if you don't mean it, why would someone say it? If you don't think there's a hint of truth, even just a hint of truth in something that someone is saying, right? Be it uh, former Governor Huckabee's comments or you know any intimations, uh, however overt or uh, kind of more uh, cute. Uh, if I could actually use that word that that you know people in Trump's circle were trying to say, like, of course he's going to win, and if he doesn't, there was something wrong. Like, even if they're being a little jokey with it, like that is not something that you hear from people who are serious about governance, right? You will never hear people who are serious about governance joke about, well, you know, now we might have violence. You never know, right? Like, it's actually a pretty grotesque thing, even if you're just joking to joke about. And so there has to be some level of seriousness. Um, and importantly, because even if the person saying it says, oh, but I was joking or I didn't really mean it or I was being hyperbolic, somebody somewhere is hearing them and somebody somewhere is taking it literally. And so there is a tremendous responsibility for any legislator or person with an elevated voice because of elected office or, you know, because they own a gazillion dollar company. Like any person with some level of an elevated voice that people listen to have a responsibility to be pretty clear with their language, particularly if they're talking about issues or topics related to or that could be perceived as inciting violence, spreading hate, dividing communities. Um, or impugning, you know, whole groups of people that could lead to those sorts of things. And so, you know, I, even if I don't think that someone means it literally, it doesn't matter because somebody somewhere likely does. And it's not a question of what you say or what you mean. It's a question of how people perceive your comments. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, there's examples uh, along the way where, you know, I have long been in the in in the bucket of, of of advocating for people to be really clear with what their language does or doesn't mean. Um, and in some cases, it's because you can make people misunderstand your policy stances. And in some cases, it means you can actually be aggressively inciting violence or creating a foundation where violence is expected or, uh, uh, you know, presumed just by the virtue of what you say, how you say it, and importantly, what people hear. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, when you came into Congress in 2018, you were in a group 
um, that got a lot of attention of women candidates then who became members who all worked in national security business, uh, military officers, CIA, FBI, whole gamut. You represent the seventh district of Virginia. Do you still have Quantico in your in your I, district? I do. I proudly represent Quantico okay. uh, and a, a number of other military installations, uh, but a ton of military veterans uh, and, and certainly lots of active duty service members. Okay. So the Marine Corps, of course, is is um, based in, in Quantico, the officer candidate school. And um, we have no commandant of the Marine Corps. Yes. We don't have or are about not to have um, a chief of naval operations. Mm-hmm. We are about not to have an army chief of staff. I, we have more than 300 positions that are unfilled, um, including the commandant of the Marine Corps, including leadership roles at military installations at home and abroad uh, that are unfilled because of one senator, which I know is where you're going with this, Steve. Um, It is outrageous. It is shameful. It is ridiculous. Um, And there's two pieces to it. One, it is impacting our readiness, right? When when service secretaries have to write a joint op-ed as some sort of call to, you know, please understand how difficult and how bad this is, like, that's a ridiculous state of affairs, right? They should be focused on the job that they have at hand, but instead they're having to raise the alarm because apparently not enough people are listening about what it is the Tuberville's doing and the detriment to our military readiness. And I could go on and on about the detriment to our military readiness. Then there's the very real impact on the men and women who have sacrificed like in countless ways, everything from, you know, injury in combat and loss of their, you know, their brothers and sisters in arms to miss birthdays and miss holidays and time away from loved ones and milestones, not just when they're in war zones, but when they're on long-term TDY or when they're PCS places that they can't bring family members. And now we have in, at this point, more than 300 by the end of the year, be more than 600 people who are in limbo. Are they going to get that next promotion? They've missed PCS season. Anybody with kids in school, you know, kids who are presumably on their maybe seventh, 10th, 15th move throughout their childhood didn't get to move in the summer. Maybe they'll move. Maybe they won't. Right. Like it's unbelievable the disdain that Tommy Tuberville is demonstrating for the people who give themselves to our military, as well as his overall disdain for our national security. And he keeps coming back with, it's not a threat to national security. Well, literally when service secretaries are writing op-eds to make the argument about how it is a threat to our national security, like believe them. And what the hell does he know? Like, uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> I, I think so. And then here's my question, because it becomes a political question, right? So the NFL season is upon us, right? So the great theater of performative patriotism, Mm -hmm. right, is about to begin anew. 
Um, we will see the giant 100-yard flags. Uh, we'll see military flyovers and, and all of it. Um, without regard to any of the underpinning ideas of the Republic, high sugar jello, right? A diet of a diet of, of pure crapola. And I guess it's a political question. And I tend to think about these things through the prism of my age, right? And um, and between our age group, right, you know, mid 40s, early 50s, the people we're talking about in the military, right? Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, Brigadier General, Major General. Let's say you have a, a, a woman army colonel, right, whose husband has moved 10, 11 times, um, has a job, has some flexibility in the job. But that guy has a career that might be 25 years into it, that he has to move where his wife, the colonel, is supposed to move to. She's been promoted. She has an assignment, but she can't lawfully engage in the assignment because she's above a rank that requires a Senate confirmation. So you've created this traffic jam, have you said, that will exponentially grow now. It's at 300. A couple months from now, it'll be at 600. And then it'll start to demonstrate the miracle of compound interest, right? We'll go from 600 to 1,200. And we will very quickly have a force that is not ready to fight. And Steve, what happens to that, you know, 40 to 45 year old who's hit their 20, right? Who can easily pivot out, can go, frankly, make a lot more money in a lot the more money. sector, can have a lot more home life stability in the private sector, you know, is going to be headhunted as soon as they come out with their military credentials and their incredible experience of leadership and all that, you know, their resume would would contain. And yet, like, what is the what what are we, the United States of America, demonstrating as our commitment to those who say, you know what, I could leave after my full 20 proud of the work that I've done, the sacrifices I've made, the service that I have demonstrated and I can go do chapter like my second chapter and it'll be great. And I'll take family vacations and I'll make a shit ton more money. Right. And now those same folks are watching the people who made the commitment to stay or are making the commitment to stay. The folks who say, no, I'm going to go out and I'm, you know, I'm going to aspire to be, and I'm going to keep leading. And my commitment is to the, you know, the soldiers and the airmen and the Marines, and the sailors behind me. And they're watching those folks be part of that traffic jam. They're watching spouses lose out on jobs. They're watching kids get screwed with in their ability to move between schools, right? They're watching that happen. And they're watching it as some performative level of just, you know, who knows what is his actual goal and intention of one random senator, right? They're watching all of that is happening because of one senator. And frankly, who are the Republican senators who are railing on him or Republican House members who are saying, cut it out. You are hurting people. You are hurting our military. You are hurting our readiness. And the impact of this will be felt in years into the future, right? So no one is speaking up for them, right? They are watching like the folks who were a couple years ahead of them at the academy or the folks who are their mentors, or in many cases, you know, some of their own circumstances, they are watching the impact 
of mm -hmm. one man's kind of, you know, culture war drama impact the entirety of the United States military? I, so I want to ask you a question, and I, it is not aimed at getting you in trouble, <laughs> though I think you probably don't care um, with your reputation for being a straight shooter. So I spent a long stretch of my career working in Republican politics. If it was a Democratic senator who was doing this, the senator and the entire party would have been crucified and would have broken very, very quickly. It would have been a bloodletting. What is wrong with the Democratic Party politically that the institution, yeah. not Abigail Spanberger, not Chuck Schumer, I'm talking about the party, I'm talking about that amorphous whatever, whatever. Why can't the party organize, target, attack, and destroy on an issue like this, which I would argue is a skill that's going to be necessary to deploy in 2024? So I'm going to give you two different answers there, right? What I would love to believe, and I, I, I can't speak for the Senate, you know, let's pretend in some fake scenario that, you know, this is, well, even if it's, you know, Senate's that's doing the confirmation, if this were a Democratic senator, like, you would have, like, it would, you'd have to wait in line to assail that, like, to assail that person, right? There would be teams of Democrats saying, we will fund your primary opponent, we will campaign against you, you do not deserve to be in the United States Senate, this is disgraceful, this is terrible, we are taking you out. So for starters, I would say there's an entirety, like there's an entire problem, and I'll get to the Democratic Party in a minute, right? Like we would turn on our own and like punch them in the face over this, right? And I can, you know, I can see my colleagues in my mind who would be right there with us, right? You could, you'd have to use like a wide shot camera because everybody would be ready to just say, we're done. This is ridiculous. You're out, like change your position, right? And then there'd be all the peer pressure behind the scenes that Democrats are really good at. And if there were ever a Democrat doing this, like it would crumble really quickly, right? And so that's, that's a question of like, why are they not doing that on the Republican side of the aisle, right? Why are they not coming to him and saying, listen, you're a United States Senator. You're not a football coach anymore. Like you are hurting national security. You fix this, you stop this, or we will one by one start denouncing you. We will one by one start pummeling you. We will find a primary opponent. We will fund him and you are out. Right. So first question is, why are the Republicans not doing that? Of course. Because, and, and let me and let me answer that one. Right. Because they're bad. Right. And they As don't it, have because, to because they have this mantle. People think they're good on military. Right. issues. They don't vote for the PAC Act. Well, some do. Right. They you know, there's plenty of people that get to vote and say, well, you know, I don't really like it had a semicolon here or an asterisk there. So I voted against the legislation, which then, you know, they'll show up talking about all the good right. things that legislation they didn't vote for does for veterans. Right. And that's just an accepted reality that. Right. It's like, life's not, life's not fair, but they're, but they're, 
but there can be no expectations on them, right? Yeah. I mean, when you've taken a walk on the idea of we choose our leaders through an election, which <laughs> de facto through a mix of complicity, cowardice, and silence, right? That That is the de facto position yeah. of the party, right? So there are no expectations for that, so right? So to get it's back all- to answer your question about Democrats, you know, I, I think that what continues to be a problem is Democrats are too nice, right? Um, and I say that as a, I, I, I'm a very kind, like eminently nice person, uh, at least I try to be. But where we could be in this circumstance, just ringing the alarm bells, just pounding in a coordinated message, right? And you see organizations doing it. Vote Vets is a, uh, a veterans organization that supports Democratic veterans running for office or those who support veterans running for office, et cetera. Like we have seen them take this issue on. And there are you know, entities within politics doing it. But what we're not seeing is a coordinated effort, certainly within the United States Senate, where I think it would be most appropriate um, to just pound on this every single day. Because you're right, if this were a Democratic senator, like, I mean, you, you, you'd get run over on the way for all of the Republicans who would want to be speaking to a microphone um, about how awful this is. And, and yet, while there have been many senators who have spoken up, it isn't in the same coordinated, you know, how's your day? Like, would you like cream in your coffee? Let me tell you about this Democratic senator, right? Like any question asked would be, don't answer, pivot towards talking about how horrible this, you know, imaginary Democratic senator is. You know, whereas Democrats like are just not taking that like aggressive, aggressive, aggressive stance. Um, and I, there's a whole host of reasons that perhaps it's uh, it's it's the case, but you know I'm I'm ringing the alarm bells. I, I'm I'm railing on this issue. I welcome anybody and everyone uh, who wants to join me uh, to to do so. But you know it also gets to the fact that you know again I'm I'm not a member of the United States Senate, but if I were queen for the day, I would love to see just, you know, an entire Senate floor full, just we're here to vote. Like we're here to ensure our national security. Like we're not leaving till that gets done. Uh, and I will say that that's a little bit of a difference between the House and the Senate, because there's certainly been times that, you know, uh, in the House, both Democrats and Republicans have an inclination to be a little bit more um, demonstrative with the way they make points. You know, it's so funny when you're when you're in the fight and and in the you know back and forth of a campaign, and especially when you think you're you're just absolutely on the right side. I just like if I was back in campaign politics, right in Washington, I I know that I would walk into a room in the Democratic Party and I said, "We're just going to have a fun week, right? We got America's dumbest senator by far, which is saying something, right? Holding up." Hundreds and hundreds of military promotions weakening the national defense of the country. Let's let's go. And if you said nothing, you agree with him. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, after the after the last election, you 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 caused a little bit of a kerfuffle, right within the within Democratic um, Party when you said that and advised. Uh, the party apparatchiks and, and consultants should watch all of the Republican ads. Yeah. And then 
nobody should ever say the words defund the police again. And the response to that from some was no congressional Democrat campaigned on defunding the police, which is true. But I guess like my question is, what, why do you think the people who criticized you, why is it that they think that those issues are associated with your party? How, how did that come to be? Because there's members of Congress who literally said those words, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. And there's video, and that video made it into attack ads across the country. You know, and this goes back to your earlier question, whether it's a Republican congressman or, you know, someone speaking about potential of violence or an inevitability of violence or something, or it's Democrats just using clumsy language or saying something that they don't really mean or what we really mean is. And like there is a responsibility to be clear in our language to voters. And so, you know, on the Democratic side of the aisle, there are a bunch of people who use this, you know, cute little catchphrase that looks good on a poster and then said, well, that's not what we really mean is. Meanwhile, the words defund and then the police, that has a meaning. And if you don't mean defund, then use something else, say invest in mental health services or, you know, invest in community policing or, right? Like all of these things that the very same people, and and in, in fairness, little asterisks, like there, there were a couple localities that actually wanted to fully defund or make substantial uh, financial cuts. But for the vast majority of people, we said, well, what we really mean is, well, people know that. No, no, people don't know that because people aren't listening to your speech on the House floor watching C-SPAN on a random Tuesday morning, right? They're seeing the ads where you're holding a sign or you're saying the words. And so if you don't mean it, don't say it. And if you mean something, frankly, that is you know impactful and thoughtful policy, then why would you not want to convey what is your sort of comprehensive plan or your thoughtful policy or something that's really meant to get at the heart of, you know, the challenge that people are facing. Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, certainly I'll say for me, in my experience, part of the challenge is this gets back to the issue that there's so few competitive seats around the country. And so many of my colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, if you're in a safe seat, you're in a bit of an echo chamber because while you might have, if you're a Democrat, while you might have you know, Democrats across the gamut and certainly you know Republicans across the gamut in your district, if you're winning with 65, 70% of the vote, you know, you're probably not hearing from them, right? Or you're maybe not visiting the events where they're gonna say, oh, you know, Congresswoman, let me tell you this. When you represent toss-up districts, you better believe that people across the the you know, the entire span of political ideology, you know, will come up to you and say, you know, you you barely won, or this is a toss-up district. Let me tell you something, right? Because there's a certain empowerment, I think, that comes when they think that, like, we might get you next time, which I, I say it jokingly, but I, I actually deeply appreciate the fact that I get to hear from people across the spectrum on a regular basis. Um, and so I know how these, you know, glib comments here or, or a slogan there, 
not only, yes, it gets kind of uh, you know, turbocharged through some of the, you know, right wing or just, you know, right ish media echo chambers, but like, I also know how it translates into the minds of people because I'm hearing them, right? Talk about things that are either deeply concerning, right? On election day in 2020, I had a police officer, a, a black man, uh, police officer come up to me at the polls in uniform, take me aside for a moment and said, I, I think I know the answer, but I just, I just want to be sure. Like, you don't want to defund the police, right? And I said, no, sir. Like, thank you for your service. Like, in fact, a lot of the improvements and, and the needs of police departments across the country actually cost a lot. Um, and I want to have honest conversations about that. And he said, okay, okay. You know, and it, he was clear that that was a legitimate question that he came to the polls and, you know, asked me, right. And, and so I think that people need to understand that like the concerns that people have are real. And in districts, in toss-up districts, we get to hear them all. Um, and the reason I said people should watch attack ads is because I think there's a real lack of understanding of what they are. And I thought this back in 2020, and Steve, allow me one more rant on this. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I had actual proof of that. So with redistricting, my district changed substantially. And my media market went from being 20% the DC media market to 80% the DC media market. So I ran far more ads on DC TV, as did all of the IEs spending against me. And I had quite a few members of Congress, wonderful colleagues, come to me and very earnestly and very kindly talk to me about the attack ads. Oh, I'm so sorry. I saw the attack ads. I can't believe the things they're saying. I had multiple colleagues give me a hug and ask if I was okay. Sincerely, earnestly, and kindly. And what that meant to me is like, wow right? Like these are wonderful people who are earnestly concerned about me because they've suddenly seen the terrible attack ads that get run against me. And then it gave me actually quite a bit of empathy because I thought, oh, all those times I thought that many people didn't understand, like indeed they didn't because it wasn't until they're getting dressed for work in the morning and they see an attack ad, you know, saying X, Y, Z, terrible things about me that they were like, oh my gosh, and they're seeking me out on the house floor, right? And people I know well, people I seldom talk to, right? It really runs the gamut and they're like deeply concerned for me. And so it just is one more indicator that so frequently, you know, people live not only in safe districts, but also in kind of safer regions or media markets where they're not seeing their colleagues attacked in a way where, it feels more personal and they really don't understand how much those attack ads are not only on television, but in fact, permeating in communities. I just drove across the country from Santa Barbara, California, up through Mount Shasta, through Oregon, Washington, through British Columbia, kind of on the border and ended up in New Hampshire where my, where my parents live about 4,300 total miles. And I had a couple of observations um, from the trip. And the first was how 
utterly and completely irrelevant. The overwhelming majority of cable news is to the lives of the people whose lives I pass by on the road. The the total disconnect, just visually, driving by between what those people see on on cable news. And in that sense, when you watch Mitch McConnell and you watch the freeze and you watch the reaction after it, which is he's fine, no problem, he's he's dehydrated, kind of the reaction tongue-in-cheek is, hey, he looks great, six more years, right? So there's this constancy of people are constantly told things that do not compute with what they are visually seeing. I, I talk to people with green hair and nose rings and a sleeve of tattoos, um, cowboys, farmers, all sorts of people. There's not a single person I met that wants a Trump-Biden rematch, even the even the Trump supporters, right? And I, I and secondly. There's not a person I met in the in the vast middle of the country who doesn't believe that through the district attorneys of a couple of cities, that the Democratic Party is an utterly lawless advocate. San Francisco and Los Angeles. Is there an understanding in Congress among Democrats of the impact of the Fox propaganda around those cities, combined with the real policies of those district attorneys as having imprinted on the national brand of the entire party? Or is there a denial about that? You know, not to speak, there's certainly exceptions to every rule, but I think broadly, there's either a denial or there's a sense that it's not relevant or there's a lack of attention. So whether it's, you know, someone actually sort of making the decision to say, no, 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 that doesn't matter. Or someone just saying that, you know, oh, that's that's not relevant. I, I do think that it is a very, very, very uh, significant problem. And, you know, I hear it in my district. I always have. You know, some of these comments uh, that that you know are coming to you straight from Fox News or straight from you know whichever podcaster, um, and and I do think that across the board there's a denial that those comments are breaking through, but more importantly, a lack of understanding of who they're breaking through with. Right? It isn't. The folks who have been wearing MAGA hats since 2016, right? That isn't just the folks who have been all in for Trump since he came down the escalator. It's it's an issue, and and I think you were getting at it with the comment about Mitch McConnell. Like, it's also just an element of people feeling disoriented and feeling like people aren't being honest with them. And so, and you know, I it I don't want to necessarily get into the man's personal health, but you know, mm-hmm. I've been dehydrated before, right? I've, <laughs> I'm drinking water during this interview, right? Like, I think there's, if you're saying that to a farmer out in the field, who's working in a hundred degree weather, you know, checking on his cattle in Virginia, 
like the idea that a man in a suit is just so dehydrated that he, you know, freezes in place and has this episode, you know, two of which have been caught on television, you know, who knows if there's more, right? There's just a, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Right. And, and that's, it may not be the focus of their day. They might not think another thing of it, but it's a little bit of like, oh, okay, sure. Just more kind of politicians saying, don't believe your eyes, right? And so whether that happens on whichever, like no matter where that happens, I think that one of the biggest challenges that we face as a country is that we're not giving the American people enough reasons to trust us and believe in us uh, as legislators as members of Congress, as uh, you know, folks who should be focused on governance, and I think that that is the foundation on which you know there's really fertile ground for people to believe anything from extreme conspiracies to just it's all broken. I'm done, right? And I think that that's the foundational piece that's really problematic. And then you know to get to your question related to, you know, the Democrats perception of things, you know, we, like, I know that my district is unbelievably different from San Francisco, right? Like everything, our geography, our industry, like all of it. But I also know that, you know, people in my district might be seeing two things. They might be seeing what's happening in some far off place that, you know, maybe they visited, maybe they've not, maybe they never will. Like that that's, they're being told it's somehow relevant to them. And do they listen? Do they not? But then it's also where they live, right? Where, like, what's important to them is also not being talked about, right? When was the last time we had, you know, national media or, uh, you know, uh, cable TV just talking about what's happening in agricultural communities, right? Outside of some of the fear mongering related to China farmland, which not, of course, is an incredibly important issue. But like, unless it's some kind of weird, exploitive man on the street, like you're in Iowa or you're in New Hampshire, like, what do you think? Right? It's, it's not a real engagement, right? With beautiful, vast communities and people uh, that exist, certainly across my district, but I'd argue, you know, across that that route you took uh, across the country. I, well, I, what a what a great answer to that to that question. Very very kind of wise look at the um, country, which is very quickly we will be celebrating a birthday. Um, this country will be two hundred and fifty years old. It's an extraordinary achievement, the oldest constitutional republic in the world. Um, the founding father of the country, um, George Washington, I think there's a real lack of understanding of why he was great. And there's a portrait of Washington in the Capitol Rotunda. Mm-hmm. It's my and, Keep going. And... In that portrait, yeah. uh, Washington is coming to resign his military commission. Yes. And the painter viewed that as the noblest act in history. 
And in that painting, Washington has laid down his cloak and draped it over a chair, which is larger than all of the other chairs in the painting, but it sits empty and unoccupied. The symbolism is that Washington has rejected Caesarism. Washington, in a highly prescribed ceremony, bows to Congress. The man who could have been king, could have been emperor, and he retires. And then he does it again. Really the first person in 2,000 years of history that that walks away from power. And so on this drive, crossing into Canada, and I'm married to a Canadian, and I love the country. Um, when you cross the border, Charles III is sovereign. He is, he is king of Canada. Every society on earth is organized in one form of another. And there are a lot of democracies that have a monarchy as the head of state. And their country's democratic processes are the same as ours with, with variations and differences, but really in many ways, no, no less freedoms, just different. But in this country, we don't have a king. We don't tolerate a king. The people elect choose people like you and you are given a lawful power with many many limits on it that can never interfere with the rights of the individual within a system that restrains the power of government that's endured for 250 years and however you think about the great jenga game of life at the foundation of the American way of life, at the American civilization, is this. We choose our leaders. And if you walk away from that, you've reset a debate and argument back, not to 1965 and the birth of the modern civil rights movement, not to the desegregation of the military in 1947, not even to 1865 in Appomattox. You've reset the debate and the argument all the way back to 1776. And so my question is, what is this 2024 election about? Because I don't think it's about the economy. Well, I, I will add, before answering your question, that that portrait, anytime I am with any group visiting, that is that is the painting that I point out. Because here is a man who could have been king, who chose to resign his commission, who chose to limit his own power, and he did that for the country, for an ideal, right? Um, also, beneath, where that uh, that's in the rotunda, beneath it is the crypt. And the crypt is called the crypt because it was supposed to be the burial place of George Washington. He was supposed to be entombed like a king, like a monarch, like this extraordinary person, you know. And he didn't want that. And after his death, his 
you know, he was brought back home to Virginia to be laid to rest in Virginia, the place he's from, and not at the seat of power for the United States. And I think that there's something even, you know, of course, as Virginians, we like to tell that story because he went home to Virginia. Um, but there's something really important about saying, no, you know, yes, I want to go home to Virginia, but actually like, yes, be revered, yes, recognized for the important role in history, but to be entombed in this space the way kings are, right? That's that's not that's not what we're going to do in this country. Uh, and I think that's another element of it. And when we look at what the 2024 election is, um, you know, I think there's a couple different things that have deeply distressed me within our political system, the divisions, the lack of respect, the uh, the kind of reductive way that we talk to each other. Um, but there's also a lack of pride. And, and we saw this even in the 2021 elections in Virginia in our gubernatorial race, right? It was some of the same language about, you know, oh, everything's terrible. Everything's terrible. People are terrible. You know, it's all this doom and gloom, which, you know, for anyone who remembers the horror that was Trump's inauguration speech, right? He spoke of a country in that speech that is not the country that I believe in, that is not the country that I served as an intelligence officer, is not the country I'm raising my daughters in, is not the country that I believe is truly extraordinary um, because of our history and because of our possibility and because of what we have done um, over, you know, and we have been imperfect, but we have always been progressing, right? And you, and we hit, you know, we, we hit stoppages along the way and we keep going. And so I think the 2024 election, I had frankly hoped it was the 2020 election. Uh, I think because of COVID and because of a whole host of, you know, predominantly because of COVID, I think that, you know, some of that, you know, we're going to break through this, this barrier, uh, this, this, this little regression that we've had along the way. I think that that was slowed. And so for me, 2024 is really a question of, you know, freedom and possibility and, you know, a wide-eyed view of the fact that, yeah, eggs are more expensive, right? Interest rates are high. Buying a house for the first time if you're starting a family is difficult, right? I'm not saying everything is perfect. That's ex like, if you truly love something, you are honest about its imperfections, but it is a devotion to making it better. And so I think that the 2024 elections are about exactly that, right? Are we going to have members of Congress who love their country, who love their communities, who love the people that they represent, whether they vote for them or not, right? And will demonstrate respect day in and day out. Because one of the things that I think is most corrosive to our political system is the fact that there is a disdain for people who disagree with you. And I may listen to someone present me with what I find to be the most objectionable opinion or assessment, but like, what's at the heart of that? And, you know, when it is something that is just ob objectionable and violent or racist or anti-Semitic, right? Like there's obvious lines where you say like, no, sir, like I will not even abide these sorts of comments. But, you know, when I had, as, as this has happened, had a, a, a Vietnam veteran come to me uh, after the 2020 election um, 
and take me by the shoulders and like at a, at a veterans day event shortly after the election and say, I'm so worried. I'm so worried about our country. I'm so worried. I think the election was stolen. Right. And in the first part, right. Because I have in this particular example, I have Vietnam veterans who come to me. I'm so worried. I'm so worried. I lost like dear friends on the battlefield defending the ideals of democracy. And I'm so worried because Donald Trump and the, you know, his supporters are undoing that, right? I've heard that time and time again. But this man came to me earnestly fearful and good for him, frankly, that he was willing to go to his Democratic congresswoman, because he was certainly not a Democrat, and express an earnest fear. And I think that where in advance of the 2024 election, being able to recognize that, you know, there are the Pied Pipers who are leading people astray, right? And they're a problem. But there are people who are listening to their messages, who are concerned, who are worried, who are fearful. Who are not the problem. Who who are not the problem, but- Who are the victims. Who are the victims of this ideology, who are the victims of manipulation, you know, or who just are taking on the information that they receive. And we can't obviously talk one-on-one -on -one to every single person, but to make sure that when we have someone come to us, you know, be it in a TV interview, however we can get the message out to demonstrate extraordinary respect for people, extraordinary respect for our nation, um, and an extraordinary level of commitment to continuing that path for progress. You know, not, oh no, everything's fine, nothing to see here, right? A clear-eyed view of the challenges we face, but a deep commitment to make it to make it better. Um, and I think that the 2024 elections, yes, issues of the economy will be important because at times that's the way people talk about things. Yes, abortion rights will be important because it's a question of freedoms and how people feel respected or not respected within their society. But foundationally, it's do we believe in this system and do we believe in the people? And this is where there's a responsibility for members of Congress uh, or any elected official to just demonstrate good behavior and professionalism and a commitment to doing right by people. Um, and I think that sometimes this gets back to, you know, how do you separate that from, you know, sometimes the politics of it? Um, and, and I think the reality is, like, I want my children to grow up as proud of this country as I was, as I grew up, right? My father had been in the military. He was a federal law enforcement officer my entire career. Like, for me, it was, how do I serve my country? Like, this place, right? Like, when I was an, I speak multiple languages. Every time I was an exchange student, like, I- How many languages do you speak? flag a badge on it. I'm like proud to be the American. Um, I speak French, Spanish, and my German's pretty bad at this point. And once upon a time, I was highly conversant in Italian. I can still read it, but I can get by in a lot of ways, but professional conversations at this point, French and Spanish. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to ask yeah. you two last questions. Um, the first, I was on a conference call yesterday with two guys um, one of them is a Democrat, another old school, but anti-Trump Republican. But what we share in common is we're all from New Jersey, which is where you're from. And I said I was interviewing you um, and you left New Jersey at age 13. 
And so there was- I'm going to fact check you on that. Okay. I was born in New Jersey. I left as a baby. Okay. Uh, and then we moved back when I was kindergarten through uh, the middle of fourth grade. So okay. I lived there twice for little stints. So we had a question, like, did you, did you qualify as a Jersey girl when I said we were, when we were doing this and the question, right, because it was, it was a mixed result on the vote. And the question was to figure it out. If you, if you qualified as a true Jersey girl, can you name the exit number on the parkway for Red Bank, New Jersey? All right. I have two comments to this one, the day after I won. So I moved away from New Jersey when I was nine years old. I lived Mm -hmm. there for four years. Um, well, I was born there, baby left when I was nine months old, then was there from five to nine. Um, the day after I won in 2018, uh, governor Murphy called, I get an unknown number. I mm-hmm. answer my phone and I hear from the governor of New Jersey, looks like a Jersey girl won in Virginia. So <laughs> I would say, according to governor Murphy, yes, I qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely not. I have no idea. Uh, I lived at and worse than that um, I lived in Matawan in Monmouth County and I was talking maybe this is two or three years ago um, with my aunt and saying oh you know I always loved visiting you all because you were so close to the water and we would always go to the shore you know and my my aunt was like you know about an hour and change away from Mm -hmm. me and she looks at me and said Abigail, are you serious? To which I said, what? And she said, you were 15 minutes from the shore, like the entirety of the time you lived in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how bad my New Jersey geography New is. Jersey memory is. Um, well, and also in fairness, it's because I sunburn and my parents hate the heat. So mm-hmm. literally they <laughs> let me believe that the shore was over by my aunt's house uh, when indeed we lived very close to it. So uh, I failed on that front. But... Failed, but if the governor says you're a Jersey girl, it must be so. But I will um, say all my New Jersey people, my right. so my parents were both originally from New Jersey. Uh, they long meet New Jersey people everywhere. Wherever they you go in this country, you'll meet somewhere from New Jersey. Made Virginia home. Uh, yes, that's true. Here's my here's my last question for you, and I'm curious about what your thinking on this is. Um, as a Republican, um, back in the day. Um, when the party was a conservative to moderate party, I grew up in New Jersey, moderate part of the party. But one of the one of the issue differences um, in the era was on the question of privatization. You know what what services are appropriate, right, for government to privatize? What public private partnerships? And there was an absolutist Democrat union position was never. There is a Republican position of privatize everything. And I have evolved on this issue in a way towards partnership, but against full privatization. There are some things like prisons, which I think are the province of the state, and that no private company should ever be outsourced that. But you are a serious national security person. I think that America's strategic posture should be that we must maintain preeminence on the in the air, mm-hmm. on the ground, in space, in in cyberspace. When you read 
about Elon Musk disabling an attack by the Ukrainian military on the Russian fleet through his Starlink service and the primacy of his position regarding America's space program, its reliance on him, the erratic behavior, the overt anti-Semitism. Do we have a problem? I I think we have an absolutely significant problem. Um, I think that there's discussions related to privatization, and then there are discussions about privatization that are also then wholly dependent on one company, one person, right? It's one thing to bring in a variety of bids. It's one thing to say, okay, you know, the express lanes from DC to Fredericksburg, like where can we, where can we work with private industry to build those out, right? That's very different from, are we going to be able to help our Ukrainian partners or will the whims and pro-Russia kind of position of one man impede that? When we're talking about, are we going to be able to get, um, you know, our researchers and, you know, items up into space and it's dependent on, you know, one man and the whims that he may choose to take, you know, his his company in a particular direction or another, right? There it is literally the, I think, example of we've put all of our eggs in one basket. And I I honestly think there's something very interesting about you know, if you look back about all of the articles about Elon Musk, right, all of these effusive, look at this interesting genius, right? Like it was almost like the makings of a Marvel movie, right? The way that he is, he was viewed as this like person who was doing all these things. And I, I think that, and I, I, I suppose I would venture a guess that somebody in, in room somewhere were saying, hey guys, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec, is this a good idea? But the reality of the way that, be it, you know, the United States tries to cut costs or, you know, streamline things or, you know, bring in uh, corporate partners or, you know, unite business uh, with government priorities, like there was a very significant uh, gap, I think, in the way that it, in this particular case with Elon Musk between you know, his engagement in space and his engagement with Starlink and, uh, you know, now Twitter, right? Like he has been, he has proven himself to be, a, you know, a highly unreliable partner. And there's one thing for there to be public-private partnerships. It's quite another when it's public one-man partnerships. Um, and, and so I do think that there's significant national security implications um, because, you know, what's next for him? What does he choose to do or not do next? Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule. I know how busy you are. Um, one of the very finest Congresswomen we have, um, an outstanding member of Congress. And um, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate the conversation. 